Hi, I'm Malcolm Hawker, and this is the CDO Matters Podcast, the show where I dig deep into the strategic insights, best practices, and practical recommendations that modern data leaders need to help their organizations become truly data-driven. Tune in for thought-provoking discussions with data, IT, and business leaders to learn about the CDO matters that are top of mind for today's chief data officers. This is Malcolm Hawker. I am your host for the CDO Matters podcast. It is my distinct pleasure today to introduce Mr. Salim Khan, who will be joining us today from Discovery Data, where where Salim is the CDAO. We're going to talk about that difference between CDO and CDAO, but I'm I'm, I'm interested to to drill down a little bit on that. Um, I met Salim, I think it was like maybe 2015, 2016 in in there, whenever you joined uh, Dun & Bradstreet. I was pretty sure I was already there. So Salim and I overlapped at Dun & Bradstreet, where at the time, Salim, you were reporting to our chief data officer, a woman named Mm -hmm. uh, Monica Richter. Um, and you were in charge of innovation at, at Dun & Bradstreet for a number of years. And I can remember being a bit of a pest to Salim uh, w- when I found that he was working on some blockchain-related stuff. And, and I think that I was, I was, I was often pestering you uh, related to uh, concerns that I had <laughs> about the implementation of blockchain at, at Dun & Bradstreet, at least from the perspective of, of any sort of kind of uh, disruptive force. We're going to talk mm-hmm. about blockchain today. Uh, we're going to talk about a few different roles, including what it's like to be a, a CDAO at a company that does data for a living. So I think Salim's got some interesting perspectives there. I would also love to talk about and I plan to talk about um, kind of data as a product, because I think for Salim, for you, it is it's it's very real because that's what you guys are selling. So right. I'll stop there. I'll stop putting words in your mouth. Salim, I would love if you could just take a minute and introduce yourself, describe your role. Sure. Um, and tell us a little bit about Discovery Data. Absolutely. Thank you, Malcolm, for having me on the podcast. Um, great to be here with Prophecy. Um, a little bit about myself. So I am you know, a recovering technologist. Uh, <laughs> my early career uh, was uh, in the programming space. So I was uh, uh, you know, out of college. You know, I had a computer science degree. I worked for a startup where I was employee number four. And uh, I was a Java programmer, did PHP development, front end, you know, JavaScript work, database design, you name it. I programmed most of it. Um, But, you know, we built a product up, built up to about 20 employees and we sold the company to a subsidiary of IBM. And so I actually, uh, you know, made uh, the entree into IBM, uh, spent about four or five years there uh, working in their global business consulting group where I had the opportunity to work with some of the largest blue chip companies in the world. Um, you know, everyone from, uh, you know, the larger uh, credit card processors through to insurance companies. And so I had a great opportunity to learn the full tech stack. And, and at right around that time, we started to see larger data sets start to present themselves, uh, especially in the banking world, especially, you know, when it came to uh, people's SMS alerting for their accounts and things like that, and trying to determine you know, who might go below their their account thresholds and that sort of thing. Um, so that's a, a really neat um, uh, introduction to some of the larger data sets at IBM. Shortly after that, I, I worked for Standard & Poor's. I was at S&P Ratings for about seven years. Uh, there, I did everything from, you know, architecting solutions for the different types of bond rating systems 
um, everything from corporate bonds to municipal bonds uh, to structured debt. Um, so I did a lot of that. And then I ran their innovation lab towards the end of that. And one of the first forays I truly had into data science and, and the, the, the data world uh, was building out a prediction model where we built out a, a sales prediction model where we would try to determine based on a number of factors for publicly traded companies, which companies were most likely going to issue debt, right? So on one end of the spectrum, you've got Microsoft and Apple, which are incredibly cash rich, and they usually don't borrow, right? Because they just have a lot of cash. But then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got companies that require a lot of cash because they're very you know, uh, capital driven, capital intensive. And so they have to take out debt. And whenever debt's taken out, S&P has to give a rating on it. And so we actually had a model that would predict which companies would need to issue debt. And more often than not, something like 80% of the time, this, this model was accurate. So that was my first foray into using larger data sets and you know, coming up with uh, predictive models. Fast forward, worked at Dun & Bradstreet, as you mentioned, I worked specifically in the alternative data space. Um, I felt like a kid in a candy shop in that job. Um, it was really neat because I got to work with um, mobile uh, foot traffic data, I got to work with satellite data, import export data, you name it. Um, all the coolest new uh, data sets that were coming out back in 2015, you know, we got to trial them, use them, and actually put them to use to, to generate revenue. So um, that was a pretty neat experience. And now, finally, I find myself at uh, Discovery Data. Uh, I've been with the company for about two and a half, almost three years now. Um, joined with them right after the pandemic. Uh, but my job right now is chief data and analytics officer. Um, and just to break that down, you know, the job is really what I like to call three components, right? So um, I break it down into a, a cheeky little acronym. I call it RAD, um, research, analytics, and data, right? And so the function that I have, number one, is, is research. So one of the things that we do is we provide a lot of research, a lot of uh, content around uh, trends within the space that we operate in, which happens to be the financial advisory space. So Discovery Data, by way of uh, background, is a company that collects data on financial advisors across the United States. So anyone who's a registered uh, investment advisor, anyone who's a broker dealer, anyone who is an insurance agent, we collect information about those individuals, uh, collect profiles on those individuals and um, essentially sell that data as, as marketing data, right? And so part of my job is to look at trends, right? So the, the research, the R in the RAD, is to look at what, what is a financial advisor's outlook for this year, for instance. And one of the key themes that emerges this year, at least, is look, equities are down, um, debt is not paying so well. So where do you go to find yield? Turns out alternative assets uh, things like private equity, hedge funds, real estate, um, even things like artwork, right, in cryptocurrencies, um, those seem to be taking off as uh, you know viable investments at a time where you're just not finding yield in the market uh, in, in the you know the the normal capital markets, if you will. And so, the the R in, in RAD research is part of my job. The A is analytics. So uh, the analytics piece of it is really how do we use this data set that we have? We have a very unique data set in that we not only have um, sort of uh, a, a Rolodex of individuals in the financial advisory space, but we also have some of their browsing behavior. So we have information about 
what these individuals are reading about. Are they reading about ESG related topics or large cap growth funds? Or are they reading about how do I break away and start my own independent advisory firm, right? So uh, we run a number of analytics to determine intent, right? Uh, which is something that you might remember from you know our days over uh, yeah. the other place. But um, you know, intent data becomes a big part of uh, the analytics piece. Uh, we also do analytics around diversity and inclusion and a couple other areas. And the final piece before I pause is is the D in RAD, the, the data operations is, is what that is. And that is essentially making sure that you have the apparatus, this ability to take in multiple sources of information, make sure that you validate the data as it comes in, making sure phone numbers are correct, emails are pingable, IP addresses are correct, all that stuff. Then you start to synthesize and normalize that data into something consumable and something that you can actually distribute to a customer, right? So there's a whole uh, framework we have, we call it frame, we could get into it in a minute, but there's a whole um, uh, data operations component here too. So I'll pause there, but you know, that's, that's me in a nutshell. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you for that background. Um, so would it be fair to say in your role, are, are you responsible for kind of like what I would call more traditional internal data and analytics, right? Like, like creating dashboards, reports, data quality, MDM for internal consumption, or is that under more of an IT banner? Yeah, so that's more on the IT side. So okay. part of my job uh, as chief data and analytics officer, I, I, I say almost 50% of my job is sales and marketing and the other 50% okay. is product development. So I have a great team. I have the luxury of having a team of individuals that do research analytics and data and they, they operate the day to day, you know, you know, bring, uh, you know, sourcing of the data, normalization and distribution of the data. But my job becomes making sure I communicate with customers, especially our largest customers as often as I can to impart on them, What's, what's the latest and greatest thing that we have to offer? What are the trends that we're seeing within the marketplace? They want to hear directly from the chief data officer. And so I feel the role has become a little bit of a marketing role, right? It's become a little bit of a sales role, especially at a data company because data is our product. And so who better to hear from than the chief data officer about what trends there are and, and where you're taking your data set, you know, what's next uh, in your data set. Well, that's interesting, though, but that, that does seem like a natural extension based off of what you guys do for a living. But I think if you're talking about other large companies, those other large companies, even though they may not be in the data business, would certainly have a perspective on what's happening in those businesses. An example would be maybe I'm the CDO at a large shipping company. Would I have interesting insights that may be valuable or monetizable in regards to kind of global trade or global demand or, or, or even a high, a high level kind of macro factor. So mm -hmm. it, it's, that's interesting to me. And it, make, it makes total sense that you're kind of like veering over into more on the marketing side and even maybe a, a bit of a, of a consultant sounds like at times. Yes. At times it is some consulting work. So helping customers think through scenarios. So for instance, one scenario I could provide, so discovery data, like I said, we are focused on financial advisor and insurance agent data, right? Yeah. Uh, think of us as sort of being the yellow pages for that, that information. Yeah. A customer may come to us and say, hey, look, there's a specific geography in the Southeast where we want to sell specific type of assets. You could be a large asset manager that sells an ETF, for instance, or a mutual fund. 
And you want to target specific advisors that have had a level of assets under management growth over the past 10 years. So they'll come to us and say, look, I only want to target advisors in the Southeast that have had at least 10% year over year growth in their AUM. And we want to be able to find that cohort and, and we want you to help us go after that cohort to be able to sell our products, to be able to pitch our products. Um, and so that's one scenario where we almost become consultants, right? The, the right. end user here has a very specific goal in mind. They have a business goal where they feel they're not as penetrated in the Southeast or Southwest or whatever region it might be. Um, and so they come to us with that specific goal and we'll have to walk them through how we would help them achieve that outcome that they're looking to achieve. And I'm happy to say that that we have nearly 1,100 customers of which you know over 90% are, are repeat customers. And it's partly because of this consultative sort of approach we take. And it's all, not all on my team. I have to also kind of lump in our customer support team. Yeah. We have an excellent client support team that almost gives white glove service to the customer to walk them through these scenarios, to help them and handhold them. I think that becomes key. You know, it's not just on the chief data officer or the data team to specifically walk a customer through and be that consultant, but to have that client support team that's fully dedicated to making that happen, that is a key part of, of success here. So I, I find this fascinating and, and not, not necessarily because this is what you do for a living day in and day out. And it, obviously it's working for you and you've, you've figured it out, but everything that you just described could easily that process that you described like the deep discovery the consultative approach understanding what clients need and 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 how to solve for those needs could easily be applied in an internal focus in an internal use case if i'm more of a traditional cdo who's been given a mandate of help build out a data and analytics organization to fuel my business there, there's a lot of conversations going on these days about you know kind of more traditional i will just say traditional cdos um, uh, at, at larger companies about them becoming more um, product-like and, and to implement more product management type disciplines within the CD organizations because so many organizations are struggling to deliver value for their companies, right? Where so many CDOs are struggling to get value out of governance. That's another good question I could ask around governance. I, I have to assume that your, your factory so you're, you're kind of managing the data factory, kind of yep. ish, um, and, and that your factory has got very, very specific rules about what's an acceptable use of data, what isn't. Uh, that has got very specific rules about accuracy of data, about all the traditional kind of metrics of, of, of data. Sure. Do you define that as a governance initiative with, with, within your organization or do you, do you call it something else? No, absolutely. We do call it governance. Um, we have a framework as part of our, our overarching that RAD framework I mentioned yeah. as part of the data operations. We have another framework under there called FRAME, um, another cheeky name, uh, but FRAME is an acronym. Uh, it stands for Fuel, Refine, Analyze, Magnify, and Execute. So what each of those components is, is essentially different parts of the data operations lifecycle. So the F in FRAME, the Fuel, is essentially the different data sources we have. So we collect data from Sources like the SEC, um, state insurance commissioners, different you know financial uh, sites, uh, as well as social media, right? So those are those are areas that we collect our fuel, if you will, from. Then it's a matter of refining that fuel. So the refinement of it 
is partly the beginning of that governance that you talked about, right? So this is essentially ensuring that fields are validated properly. Um, we have, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of checks that we do on each individual field we take in. We take in something like almost 3,000 different data fields uh, across the financial advisory world, a couple hundred fields in the insurance agent world. And then I've got a number of other data sets that we tack on, which brings it to almost like 5,000 uh, unique uh, columns, if you will, that we, we take in. Um, and so every one of them needs to be validated and make sure that we have consistency uh, around uh, that. So that's the, the R in frame is to refine it. Then we analyze uh, the data set. So for instance, what we'll do is what I call the dipstick test. Um, you know, a more, a, a more seasoned person would call it, you know, a stratified random sampling. Um, but that's essentially, you know, taking a, a random sample of your data set, uh, a 5%, 10% sample, something that's representative, and to actually manually review it. And so we actually have a team of folks that uh, manually review that data to ensure its accuracy. You know, we'll check sources like LinkedIn, SEC sites, you know, different state insurance commissioner sites to kind of confirm that the data looks accurate. And so if it looks accurate on a representative sample, that means your larger sample is going to be correct as well, or at least 90, 95% uh, correct. Um, then there's certain areas where we, we magnify. So this is the M in frame. Uh, magnification is essentially creating derived data assets. So for instance, you've got all this raw material now. I've got data on, let's say, Malcolm Hawker. He's a registered investment advisor. He lives in Florida. He's registered to be an advisor in four states adjoining uh, Florida. He's managed to build up a book of business that has 30 million in AUM or 50 million in assets under management. He's killing it. He's doing a great <laughs> job, right? And so now the question is not becomes, a financial right, analyst, not a financial yes. advisor. This is <laughs> not financial not. advice. It, it is not, absolutely. <laughs> We're just using Malcolm as an example. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. If a fictitional um, Malcolm, there could be many of me. Yes, that's exactly right. So uh, what we would do then in the magnify uh, component is to say, look, you know, if you look at Malcolm on a, on a five-year time horizon, he's been doing fantastic. And so how do you rate him on a score of one to five, right? Five being the highest. And so we'll actually create these derived data sets. We'll create advisor success levels as we, as we call them. So we'll say, look, Malcolm is an overachiever. This is someone that will continue to grow their AUM based on their, their previous history and track record. And so if you're an asset manager, um, a large asset manager, you know, uh, that is distributing an ETF, you most likely want to go after someone like this, someone who represents, someone who has this profile of growth, right? Because that's most likely the person that will buy your product and then ideally sell your product to an end investor, right? Um, and so that's where the magnification piece comes in. And then finally, the last part of frame is execute. Um, and execute is essentially how we deliver our products to our customers. And so we've got multiple ways in which we do that. And while it's not a governance theme necessarily, I think it's an important topic to talk about because there's multiple ways nowadays to distribute your content, your data to customers. So traditionally, we've done portals, right? Every, every data company out there has some sort of portal or user interface that you log into, you put in your search filters and you pull out a data set and you dump that into Excel and then you plug that into your Salesforce or whatever it might be. We've also got APIs as a, as a mechanism to distribute data. But then more and more what we're seeing is companies like Snowflake emerge, right? And companies like that essentially are serving as uh, data aggregators. So what customers more and more are doing is 
they don't want to just see necessarily data from one provider. They want to see data from two or three providers that are adjacent and take those two or three providers and create something new or unique that helps them meet their needs. So for instance, they might couple this financial advisor data that I provide along with consumer data. So data about you as an individual. Are you, for instance, a golfer, a wine enthusiast? Um, you know, are you into fly fishing? What are your hobbies, right? That's not necessarily data that we would collect, but you know, it's data that you could lump together, um, you know, kind of uh, synthesize together and create a new derived output out of that to say that, look, here's a profile of an advisor that has a track record of growing their business, also happens to be interested in golf, also happens to have been an, uh, a graduate of UCLA or Penn State or whatever school it might be. As an asset manager, you want to know these things because as you market your capabilities to this individual, it's great to go in there not with a, uh, you know, I've seen that you've grown your business by 10% year over year. I'd love to talk to you. You know, it's better to go in there with, hey, I happen to also be an alumni of Penn State and I happen to like golf. Would you like to go out to a golf outing, right? Um, that's the sort of kind of synthesis of data that we're seeing on, on platforms like a snowflake where you can start uh, adding in these different data sets. So make a long story short, you know, we do have this, this framework, we call it frame. And, um, you know, it has all these components around governance as well as how you distribute data uh, in the end. So, so it sounds to me like governance is just baked in. It, it's, it's part of the cake. You can't, you can't bake the cake without having governance baked in. This is another thing that I'm hearing a lot more of in my world, which is, you know, a governance by design, right? It kind, kind of aligns to you know, more of a kind of like a DevOps model where it's operations by design and it's just part of the cake. You bake it in. Sounds like that's kind of what you're doing. Where does, where does it start? What, what's the kind of the, the, the tip of the spear here, right? Is it, do you have product managers or analysts? Like who, who's out there saying, hey, we, we need to build a widget yeah. or we, we need X, Y, Z? You know, believe it or not, nine times out of 10, it comes directly from customers. So one example I'll give is um, in the middle of 2020, we had one of the world's lar largest asset managers come to me and say, you know, we're really thinking about our diversity and inclusion initiatives. And we really need a data set to understand what the current makeup is for financial advisors within the United States. How diverse is this industry? How many diverse advisors do we have? How many minority advisors do we have? And so that particular idea came directly from a customer requesting it. And what happened was that large customer asked for it. And then all of a sudden, a dozen others asked for the same thing. And so interestingly just by enough, happenstance, it, just, it just happened, like just coincidentally, or they, well, they, they were all playing golf one day or like maybe. No, I knows? think I think I think that particular one was driven by certain, you know, cultural things that were going on in 2020, if you okay. recall, uh, in the okay. summer of there that, were, that there year. Were, there were a few things, yeah. Yeah, a few things happened that year yeah. uh, in addition to COVID. Uh, but, you know, I, I think a lot of that drove financial services leaders thinking about, okay, we need to have a strategy. If we're serious about diversity and inclusion, we need to have data to drive that strategy. We need to know what the current benchmark is, meaning where are we today when it comes to diversity and how do we get to where we want to be, right, to be a diverse organization. And so it came out of that. I think that's where a lot of that came from. So. Customers definitely are one big, um, you know, source for us. Another big source is just reading the tea leaves, right? Looking at what is uh, three to six months out. What are customers going to ask for? 
And so we had this uh, product, actually a third party partner that we work with uh, around uh, advisor intent, right? So intent, you're familiar with the marketing space, marketing intent yeah, data. Yeah. Um, in the same way, uh, asset managers are now starting to use this intent data to figure out which advisors should I be going after. And so we saw that in this world of asset management, intent was not even being discussed, right? But we knew that six months from now or a year from now, it's going to become an imperative because everyone's working from home. You need to find a way to figure out this is the audience I have to go after without having to fly all over the country to do that, right? Um, and so we developed this intent data set uh, and it, it's been something that we drove internally. We saw the need for it. And that then grew into something that was actually pretty big for us from a, from a ACV or annual cash value standpoint. So, you know, our products went from uh, being, uh, you know, you know mid-priced products to being exorbitantly priced, partly because of the richness of this intent data, right? Uh, they just brought a brand new way to uh, surgically focus on an on audience and then have that audience actually convert into paying uh, individuals, right? Uh, right. So it, it was a very different sort of data set. So anyway, to answer your question, there's two sources, uh, you know, customers, definitely I keep my ears open and listen to what they're saying and what they're not saying too. And then the other part is just having a sense of where the puck is headed, right? Uh, that That is the two areas uh, from a product development standpoint. I'm Canadian. So I get the Wayne yes. Gretzky metaphor of where the puck is going to be. Uh, yeah. Um, but but do, do you have product managers working in your team or are they they called analysts or are they more customer, you know, customer success type people? What, what, what are the roles there? Yeah. Yeah. So we do have product managers. So I do okay. have um, a couple of product managers on the team. They are more, uh, I would say, the traditional agile product development sort of folks. Okay. So folks that will take requirements and convert those requirements into, you know, portal feature enhancements or API enhancements or enhancements in Snowflake. Uh, but that spark of that idea uh, could come from anywhere. It could come from me. It could come from the product manager. Uh, it could come from a data subject matter expert, right? We might have, for instance, you know, we've got a couple subject matter experts on Canadian data, for instance. Uh, Canada is unique in that they do not... Uh, Canada has an interesting marketing stance in that you cannot market to individuals in Canada unless they actually opt in to that right. marketing. Right. And so the question becomes, well, how do I get them to opt in without sending them an email? Right, right. exactly. Um, right. And, and so <laughs> conferences and other mechanisms become yeah. the way in which you reach these individuals. Fascinating. Um, and so that came directly from some of our subject matter experts uh, on Canadian data. Uh, so that's how we developed that particular product. But um, yeah, the, the ideas come from all over. And as a leader, I think part of the, the job of a leader, of a chief data officer, is to synthesize everyone's ideas into something that is tangible, something that, you know, I always think as a salesperson, I try to at least, how do I put shrink wrap and a bow tie and a bow on this thing and say, you know, here's your, here's your final product go off and sell, happy selling, you know? Because data sales can be very complex depending on the complexity of the data. So the more you can shrink wrap it and, and have a good narrative around why this is helpful for a customer, uh, the better, so. How much of your process is related to kind of training around the use of that data? So a, a, a big theme right now in my world 
is is something otherwise known as data literacy, right? Like this notion of the people out there who are consuming the data don't know enough about the data and that's why they're not getting value from it. I happen to be vehemently opposed to that phrase uh, because to me, it, it turns it, it turns the problem from uh, to, to a, a user problem instead of where I think it should be on the creation side, right? If you're creating a data product, if you're creating something for consumption and people can't consume it, they don't know what it is, they don't know how to use it, they don't know how to derive value from it, I would argue that's a product failure, not a user failure. What 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 are your reactions to what I just said? And, and, and kind of writ large, just in the theme of, of, of literacy and how you get your clients to the point yeah. of comfort of using your products. Completely agree. Um, I think so. There's uh, different mechanisms. Um, I've become pretty well versed in the sales uh, space, and using the Sandler method has become a big one. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I'm not. It's it's a lot of scripting. It's a lot of rehearsing. It's a lot of you know coaching. So there's a lot of uh, player coach sort of things that have to happen. Where I work with the sales team to to have this kind of talking point document so that they have these key points you want to hit on. The questions become, the first thing a customer wants to know is what value do I get? Am I, am I getting some return on investment? Am I increasing revenue? Am I decreasing headcount? Like wh wh what is the value, right? You start with a value-based conversation first and that for a salesperson is gold, right? Because they yep. want to start with that value first. And then you can go into the bells and whistles and the features of how you derive that particular value. And so I find, that to your point, when when you have a product that has a miss, there's one of two reasons. Um, one could be that it was just a terrible product, right? Uh, two could be maybe wrong place, wrong time. Maybe you're a little too early with the product. But the products that do work out, they tend to work out partly because the chief data officer or the head of product is working directly in tandem with sales and marketing to create that narrative, to tell that story of value to the customer and making sure that that customer has a very simple and crystal clear understanding of how this data set or how this product is going to help them achieve the outcome they want to achieve. And so that, that's been my approach is I, I've, I've had to kind of morph from being, you know, look, I was a data nerd for a very long time and a technology nerd. That's where I, I love to be. But I've had to pull myself out of that and say, okay, I've got to kind of be a salesperson, marketing person, and think like how, how would they go about selling this product, right? And so that kind of, I think, the CDO role, especially at a data company, has evolved. You have to now think in that that manner if you're going to survive. <laughs> well, I would argue. So when I was at Gartner, I was having these conversations and I was telling my CDO clients all the time, you need to think like a marketer. You need to think like somebody who may even be like in a PR role of how do you get the message out there? How do you tell this? And you use the word narrative. Love it. How do you tell a narrative of how to derive value from these data products? I think I think if companies within internal, internally facing data and analytics organizations adopted more of the practices like what you're talking about, whether or not it's a, a frame model, there, there are other kind of, there are models, I love the framework, by the way, um, or whether it's kind of these more kind of, you know, selling type um, uh, methodologies, I think that that could do nothing but good uh, for, for kind of other kind of more traditional CDOs. That's, that's just fantastic stuff. I love it. Let's let's transition a, a, a little bit. Um, you know, I mentioned kind of blockchain. Uh, I, I I fell down the blockchain rabbit hole a, a couple of years ago. 
I wrote an article for Forbes about a month ago now. The title of it was How Blockchain Will Save Data Governance. Yes, a little clickbaity, a little pithy. I, I get that, but, but I actually believe it. I, I know that you were looking at this stuff a long time ago, um, mm -hmm. and long being five plus years ago. Where do you see things now of blockchain kind of through the lens of B2B, through the lens of maybe data management? Um, is it, where are we? Is it still coming? Is it, is it still eminent or have the wheels fallen off? What, what, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm a big champion. I'm a big fan of blockchain, um, especially in the data management, data governance space. I think, look, five, six, actually it's seven years ago now, 2015. Yeah. Crazy how yeah. fast time flies. No kidding. But but when we started, uh, you know, at the former company doing work around blockchain, you know, it was in in its infancy. To be honest, you know, it we had Ethereum. We were using Ethereum as our, our blockchain. Um, it had a programming language called Solidity, and what we were doing there was essentially writing smart contracts for businesses that we were tracking, and the database behind the scenes was not Ethereum. It was actually IPFS. And so IPFS, the IP file system protocol, it's called, yep. um, essentially is oh, like an open database, right? And so what we would do is we'd have like a, let's call it a Rolodex card for IBM, right? And that would point to an IPFS file location to say, here's all the data on IBM. They're located in Armonk, New York. And, you know, here's the CEO and here's all the information about them. But back then, you kind of had a separation between ethereum as a blockchain and where the data was actually stored because in ethereum there's a limit to how much data you can actually store within a, a contract right i think it was like a 10k limit or something like that it still is because um, the, the 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 change would just get massive right like the the block yeah would be, it, it would. Would, would would be massive yeah and verification would take forever yes. yeah. and you know we were, we were just doing single node validation back then so this is not like truly a distributed ledger right. in that, you know, you've got multiple nodes validating that's truly IBM and Armonk New York, right? You, that That's a true, um, you know, blockchain. But now you've got companies, you know, I recently noticed like uh, Big Chain DB. I noticed that MongoDB has gotten into this space. And a lot of these companies, what they're doing is, I, I think where, where the data housing and sourcing is headed is very similar to what I call the Spotify model. And so when you think about that music player, the Spotify music player, what they did was they essentially created a digital rights management kind of, you know, platform for music. And what they said was they said, look, the music industry is fragmented. You've got all these record labels. They're putting out all these records. You've got to go to this store to get a record there. You've got to download something from here and there. Spotify just made it easy. They said, look, just pay 10 bucks a month and you get all of your content in this one place. And so I think when you think about blockchain, what blockchain is going to do for databases is similar to what Spotify did for music in that you're going to be able to take in data sets from multiple sources, create contracts for the usage of that data, right? To say that every time you use this particular data asset, you know, X amount has to go back to the originator of that content. So you're going to have this sort of like, capability where you can price and digitally store and, and do the rights management and governance around uh, data. Um, and so, you know, I look at some of these newer technologies now and I'm, I'm kind of wowed by how far it's come in the past seven years. Uh, I think now more than ever, it's become viable to start storing data within a blockchain native 
uh, system like a like a big chain DB or MongoDB, and not necessarily endorsing any of them, but just kind of using them as as an example right. as of, of databases that are using blockchain as a mechanism to do the digital rights management, but also pay back the content creator. Right, that's a big part of this because there's there's two sides of the coin here. There's the person that wants to consume the data, the person that actually went through the the trouble of normalizing, validating, scrubbing, all the work that goes into getting data just right so that you can consume it and get the right result, right? So there's there's two parts here, but that's my two cents on, on where so, I see So um, I love it. It is, it's amazing to me you brought up DRM and that you brought up Spotify. In, in my largely unsuccessful attempts to explain my thinking here, uh, particularly to friends of mine who have the, uh, well, you know, okay, who's going to pay a million dollars for a JPEG of a bored ape? And beyond that, why would I do that when I can just right click on it and download it anyway? Right. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of what I hear when I, when I, when I go on my rants uh, about blockchain. And what I always say in response to that is, um, well, bef a long time ago, and trust me, this is real gray hair. Um, when I worked at AOL in 1996, we were saying the exact same, people were saying the exact same thing. Why would you distribute, why would you even bring your music into this platform if people can literally just right-click it and download it a zillion times and send it to a zillion people? That was a valid question at the time. And then along came D DRM. And you can say whatever you want about DRM. I've, I've got gripes about DRM from a fair use perspective and other things related to copyright law, but putting that aside, <laughs> Um, DRM said, hey, it, it's it, oh, this person has the ability to do this to this piece of copyrighted music. And it, it, it missed the, uh, I would say it, it kind of missed the compensation and incentives piece. It just did the rights management piece. So again, maybe a separate issue, but blockchain does that quite well. It does incentives and compensations really actually quite, quite well. Um, and what I see going on right now is DRM being built for blockchain, whether that's a smart contract whether that's something else or whether that's a layer two or layer three that's sitting on top of these smart contracts, I see the exact same thing happening where in another few years, you won't be able to right click on that board ape and, and download it because whatever infrastructure you're using to look at it will have integrated that DRM software and will be able to and apply those rights because if they don't, they'll be in violation of copyright law. So yeah, I, I, I love the metaphor of Spotify um, and, 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 I didn't know about MongoDB, but like Amazon has uh, a ledger database. Uh, Microsoft has a ledger database uh, yeah. that, that are being used for these things. So I, I couldn't agree more. You, you, what you laid out is, 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 is bang on to what I believe will eventually be a world of kind of just hyper decentralized yeah. data ecosystems. I'll, I'll just call it a data ecosystem for lack of a better word, where, where companies potentially are willfully sharing certain data assets. What, what do you yeah. think about that? I, when, I, when, I, when I ask people, when I say, okay, well, I've got this idea, but it's gonna require some form of sharing of data and maybe even a little bit of transparency that kind of goes yeah. along with blockchain. From the perspective of sharing data, what, what, do, yeah. what, what do you think when you hear that? And look, I have to preface this by saying these are my own opinions on, yes. on blockchain, not my company. Ditto. Ditto. Uh, but yes. Yeah. I think I think you're right. I think what's going to end up happening is in the same way, I'll use the Spotify analogy again. You had um, you had fragmentation in the recording industry, right? And the fragmentation caused inefficiencies for the end user. The the end user 
wanted, they didn't want an entire album from, let's say, uh, I don't know, uh, Nirvana. Spice Girls. Yeah, right? <laughs> the Spice Girls. Yeah, there we go. That's a good one. They wanted just the one song they liked. But then yeah. they also liked a, a song from another band and another band. What became important was the playlist, right? Yep. That became the important thing. That was the killer app, I think, for something like Spotify. And so I see a similar thing playing out with data. Right now, the data, data industry in general is incredibly fragmented, right? You've got like hundreds of data providers, mm -hmm. but the end user wants a little bit of this data, a little bit of that data. They want their playlist of data so that they could synthesize it into some sort of analytic or some sort of outcome, some sort of report, right? And it's, it's never one place that you can go to get data. And so I think blockchain and, and DRM play a very interesting role, I think over the next five years of getting the inefficiencies out of sourcing the data, getting it into one place, and then being able to use it to synthesize some outcome, either an analytic output or some sort of you know derived output that helps you to reach some outcome. So yeah, I mean, just to sum up, I think uh, you know five years from now, we might be talking about something similar to Spotify. We'll call it Datafy or something like that, right? <laughs> um, yeah, and we'll want royalties. That's right. right. That's right. If, if Datafy comes up, we want royalties. That's right, because we just copyrighted it. We talked about it. It's in a fixed medium and we're good to go, right? Um, yeah. I, 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 I could literally talk about this for hours, but uh, Salim, thank you so much for joining us today. I really, really appreciated the perspectives and the insights from, from, from somebody who was a CDO where data is the product because as I've said about four or five times in our conversation today, I, I think that all CDOs could learn from this if they want to implement more product-centric disciplines within their organizations, if they want to build data products, if they want to be more customer-driven internally. I think following a model like what you shared, that frame model, is a fantastic first step. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you for spending a portion of your day with, you, with us today. It's good to see you. You too. All right. Well, let's uh, keep thank the conversation you. going. Great to see you. Thank you again.